Thank you for tuning in to the sermon podcast from Redeeming Hope. We exist as a family of faith that follows Jesus and helps others find him by living all of life as missionaries of hope. If you want more information about our church or would like to support our ministry, go to our website at redeeminghope.org. Please enjoy the sermon podcast. Now, it's a little hard to notice because Pastor Derek and I swap preaching, you know, every couple of weeks, but I've been out of town the past couple of weeks. Uh, I've been in Montana and I also went back to Maryland and I wanted to find a way to weave in what I've been doing into the sermon. I think I found a way to do it. And so I was doing some fishing. So I went to Montana and did some fly fishing and I went to Maryland and fished with one of, one of my best friends um, on this place called Jug Bay. And my proposal is that the gospel is more like fly fishing than kayak fishing. Let me explain. So um, uh, this, uh, maybe about a couple of days ago, I was in Maryland and uh, my one of my closest friends uh, who I had introduced to fishing is now like uh, just a, a master fisherman on the Chesapeake Bay and the waters of Maryland on the Atlantic East Coast. And so he prepped these kayaks uh, for me uh, we show up and we're trying to catch some big blue catfish. And I'm actually going to show you a picture of the catfish that I caught. Um, we were trying to catch some big blue catfish at this place called Jug Bay. And so what happens is, is that we get in this kayak and we've got this with this heavy rod. Okay, it's very heavy. It's, it's thickly braided line and we got stinky bait. So we got stinky bait and heavy sinkers. And we're on a kayak and we throw it out. And the idea is this, that the moment that the rod tips down, you're supposed to pull up. And because we have such strong test line on it, you just do one of these deals. You just reel it in as fast as you can. You're just pulling it up and you're fighting these big old huge catfish to try to get in, right? So it's it's herky-jerky, very kind of like, instinctual to just like grab the reel and just go and haul that thing as quick as you can because you don't want it to get off the line. Now, a week and a half prior to that, I was in Montana fishing on the Bighorn River. And so I caught a few of these types of fish, um, caught some Rocky Mountain whitefish and some, some brown trout as well, obviously not as big, but fly fishing is absolutely completely different. See, here's the deal. It's very counterintuitive to how you and I would think about fishing should be. We think that when the fish goes down, we pull up the line and we bring it in. With fly fishing, you don't have a barb on the end of your hook. So there's nothing keeping that hook in the fish. You're also typically fishing on a river. So the first thing you do when you feel like the fish has got the bait, and actually it's not even stinky bait, it's actually just a a dry lure or wet lure, all of a sudden you, you... almost go stand at attention with the rod. You almost put point the rod completely up in the air. And then you don't like grab a reel and reel it in. There's this very thick line on it. And then you slowly, while keeping tension on the line at all times, you slowly pull the fish in with the line by hand. And so you're constantly having to turn the, the fishing pole, which is very long, 10, 12 feet long, up river to keep tension on that line as the water's flowing 
you put it in the opposite direction and you very slowly, gently pull this fish in, giving it a lot of line if it wants to go out and then gently pulling it in. It's, it's absolutely bonkers how different kayak fishing is to, or general fishing in, with just a rod and reel to, to fly fishing. And you see this, that's why they call it angling. That's what they call fly fishing angling because you're always having to think about the angle. And, and here's what I found with relationships within the home and specifically as it relates to our topic today about conflict is that a lot of times we are just very herky jerky. It's like we've, when there's a tension, when there's problem, all of a sudden our natural reaction is just kind of pull up and go crazy, right? It's to pull up and either completely suppress our emotions or completely give into them. And it's just kind of like the kayak fishing example of pulling up and just pulling that reel in as fast as we can. But but when when we think about the kingdom of God and we think about how Jesus' rule and reign has come into the world, how he saves us, and then invites us in, into an entirely new way of living. When Jesus comes into our family, we begin to live under kind of different rules. We begin to live under different principles. We begin to act differently, think differently, think deeper about things. There's that it's, it's A lot of times it seems like everything is backward. Everything is counterintuitive, and it's much slower, and the product of our families actually looks different. The gospel is more like fly fishing. The sense of thinking deeply about these things, going much slower, and a lot of times it seems counterintuitive. It's not just the the herky-jerk reaction of either self-justification or self-expression or self-condemnation when there's conflict, but, but actually we begin to think deeply about what God has done for us and then how we can respond to that. So so like I mentioned, we are at the series end here with uh, God at home. And today we're talking about resolving conflict. And one of our main kind of passages is going to be 2 Corinthians 5, although we're going to look at a couple of different passages as it relates to these topics of forgiveness and reconciliation. So, um, you know, as I was thinking about this, uh, I can't help but share some stories from my own marriage where I've failed. But I I wanted to maybe propose this question to us as we begin today, which is, have you ever felt like in the midst of conflict, you almost have an out-of-body experience where you're thinking about the fight as it's happening? Like maybe you know it's stupid, or maybe you know it's important, but you're not going about it the right way. Or maybe you are going about the right way, but you're thinking now's just not the right time. But but you just feel the wheels coming off. Like you're like still talking and you're thinking about it. And it doesn't seem like you can control yourself. And uh, Rachel and I had this happen, of course, in a lot of different ways over the 10 years of our marriage. But one of the ways that that happened that I felt was comical to share was um, we, we, were, we had this bad habit of washing our bedroom sheets and forgetting to put them back on before we go to bed. So like in the morning, we'll strip the bed. We're like, oh, we need to wash the sheets, put them through the washer, and then a couple hours later, We'll forget about them and then we'll put them in the dryer. Okay, great. And then we'll go dump the sheets on the bed and dump the clean laundry on the bed. And we'll totally forget that we didn't make it. And so at the end of the night, we go upstairs to go to sleep and we see clothes piled up on the bed and sheets that we got to put on the bed on there. And I have to admit, especially earlier on in our marriage, there's just a couple of times we just 
pushed everything off and slept without on the on the mattress without putting the sheets on. But um, at eleven o'clock at night, Rachel and I were tired, and we went upstairs. We were putting the sheets on the bed. Now you know there's the fitted sheet that goes underneath you, and then there's that that flat sheet. There's the top part that goes on top of you. Well, that flat sheet is 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 um, woven in such a way. It's 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 sewed in such a way. So you know that there's a specific part that goes towards your head and a specific part that goes towards your feet. It's just it's just stitched differently. But unfortunately, what we had was we had the appropriate stitching on the top where the head is supposed to go, that goes up by your head. But the tag, which is almost always supposed to go by your feet, was incorrectly put on the place that's supposed to go by your head. And you can imagine the conflict that ensued. I and Rachel and I had this like knockdown drag out like 30 minute fight about how the sheet should go, whether the tag should go towards the bottom or the tag should go towards the top because of the stitching. And it, it was really comical. We laughed about it later, but it, it's kind of like that idea. I remember I was remembering it as I was thinking about the sermon that it just starts to go right. It just starts to, you feel the train has left the station on this argument or this fight or this conflict, and there ain't no pulling of that. And you're trying, you're even thinking, how can I get out of this? But you just can't stop. And I, and I think that, you know, when we think about conflict, we think about the ones who know you the, the most hurt you the deepest. But then we also, we also sin against those who we are closest to, right? Because we're just simply in proximity to them. We have familiarity with them. And, and what happens, especially with the family dynamic, is the family carries the pain forward and it masks it to get through the day. Right. So fa- families with that don't resolve conflict quickly will just often kind of move on from it and then carry it forward to kind of get through the normal day to day life. And so there there can be at times in marriages, especially in different topics, undercurrents of pain that are flowing underneath the surface in relationships. And so as we talk about God at home, we want to talk about bringing forgiveness and bringing reconciliation to these areas. And our text today it's from 2 Corinthians 5, 17 to 19. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Our main point for today is this, that Jesus makes us new creations and his kingdom gives us an incredible hope for change in the midst of conflict. We embrace that hope through recognizing what's been done for us, which then reorients us towards forgiveness and reconciliation. So we're going to talk about three points today. What to do when you've been wronged, what to do when you have wronged, and the ultimate hope in the midst of conflict. So first, what to do when you've been wronged. I want to talk about our natural response to when we have a real or perceived wrong. And the Bible actually talks about this, which we're going to look at in a few minutes, but there is a framework of debt that happens when we feel like we have been wronged or we have been wronged. And that could be a relational, maybe even physical or emotional deficit that is created when someone wrongs you. And it creates kind of a framework that this debt must then be paid. And the natural flow of our life and the natural flow of the way of the world around us is to seek, it's kind of bent towards seeking this exacting justice 
to pay the debt in some way, right? So there's this looking to exact justice uh, towards that person or situation to somehow pay that debt back. So a lot of times we might think, I I just want to know why you've done this. I want you to feel what I feel, and I want to know that you will pay a price for what you've done to me. Um, I felt this quite poignantly uh, a number of years ago. We had secured getting a car for someone in need. And guys, this was oh, this was a sweet car. It was a 1999 Cadillac DeVille. Uh, it was just cream colored. It was like a grandma car. It had less than 100,000 miles on it. And I love big old cars, okay? Uh, I love big old cars. I love driving this thing. So I gave it to this friend of ours, and she used it for about a year, and then she gave it back to us. And it just so happens at that point, I needed a car. So I started driving this thing around, and I just loved it. But we were also loaning it out to people in need. And so there's a, a, a person that needed a car. They were in a really tight situation, so we let them borrow the car for a couple months. And when I went back to pick up the car, the moment I walked up to this 99 DeVille, my heart just sank because it had been in three different car accidents. Half the lights were busted up. There was dents. There was scratches. There was the headlights didn't work. And I got in to turn it on. It was rattling like you would not believe. I knew that this person hadn't put the appropriate octane gas in it, which could wreck the engine. But the most important thing was the smell. I got in and this like wave of smell hits me on my beautiful, pristine 99 Ville that had been just perfect grandma car. Smelled great when I gave it to her. When I got it back, it was like a wave of something that I had never smelled before. It smelled like burnt bleach. It smelled like um, baby diapers. I mean, it was just this strange smell. I've never smelled it before. So I rolled the windows down. I put the appropriate gas in it, and this car limped to my mechanic. And so I walk into the mechanic, and I say, I, I got to figure out what's going on. The frame, the literal frame of a 4,000-pound car had been bent. No clue how that happened. And so the mechanic, I said, I just got this strange smell. Can you help me with this? And so he leans in. He goes, yep. And I was like, I kind of looked at him like, what? And he calls one of his friends over, and his friend does the, uh, is comical. His friend did the exact same thing. He leans in, he smells. Yep. And they look at me, and I was like, what in the world is this? And they're like, that's meth. That is methamphetamine. And so I got the car fixed, ended up selling it for what I was able to put into it, which is good. But I, uh, I unaffectionately referred to that car after that as the meth mobile. It was the meth mobile. And so I was so angry. I was literally got on the phone with my wife as we were driving out of this person's neighborhood who kind of was embarrassed and they didn't really tell us what was going on. And they were kind of lying to us, not telling us the truth about what happened. And I was telling Rachel, I said, I want her to pay for it. I want her to pay to get this thing fixed. This thing was pristine when I gave it to her. And I just could not get over the fact that I would given her this car and she had messed it up. And Rachel just so calmly so lovingly, but yet very direct. And my wife is just, she's able to reorient me so often. And she said, Josh, why are you mad? She's like, this isn't your car. This is God's car. This was given to you. Why are you mad that she did this? She doesn't owe you anything. 
because it's God's car. And I was like, dang it. You're right. (laughs) She was right. And it took a little bit of time for me to forgive this person, but we ended up forgiving them and and reestablishing a relationship with them later. And I think that what happens when people sin against us is we either want to exact a payment or we harbor resentment. So the, the, the external expression is we want to exact a payment and we kind of are externally aggressive, or we can be internally aggressive and we harbor resentment, which then eats away at our own souls and then affects how we engage with them. And, and when you add the family to sin and conflict, it's like a multiplier of pain. It gets complicated. It's very subtle, right? Because because with close relationships, there's always a give and take. There's always probably sin and suffering and forgiveness on, on both sides of the coin. And, and here's the deal. When, with your family, your immediate family, when there's a conflict, you still have to get the groceries. You still have to pick the kids up from school. You still have to go do the normal stuff of everyday life. So a lot of times this hurt can sink down deep into our hearts. And then it comes back up in different ways that have nothing to do with the original hurt. It's like whack-a-mole hurt. And so what's really happening underneath the surface when you've been sinned against and are struggling with that? What oftentimes happens is that we become the judge and jury of the situation. We say, I know the pain and I know the punishment. And we either want to exact some sort of payment from the other person or we harbor resentment and really try to punish them through our lack of relational connection with them. And so uh, here's, here's the deal. What's the diagnosis here? Like what's the, what's the treatment plan for conflict? And the Bible is very plain and clear, but we can't just leave it with the the command, we have to understand how we accomplish it. But the command is this. The command is very simple in, in Colossians 3. It says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And here it is. If one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So he's saying, we've got to do this. This is like foundational to the Christian life. But the question is, how in the world do we do this? Because guess what? There's real pain. There's real trauma. There's real suffering that happens when someone sins against you. Like the Cadillac was actually damaged and need to get paid. I needed to pay to fix it. Somebody's got to pay the payment. How in the world do we move forward? when there's actually real effects and consequences to people's sin against us, people's antagonism against us. Well, um, we have to scream this. How in the world do I do this? And that's where we come to Matthew chapter 18, because I think Peter had that same question to the response of Jesus talking about forgiveness. And this is what Peter says in Matthew 18, starting in verse 21. Then Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how often... Well, my brother sin against me and I forgive him as many as seven times. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Then Jesus goes into a parable. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, 
the master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Now, as as we read this in 21st century, it's really hard for us to grasp what's going on here. So we have to kind of dive in and be a little Bible geeks for like 30 seconds to to extract from the text what's happening. So let me tell you, 10,000 talents. He's, he's been forgiven a debt that he owes a king. And if you had a debt and you could not pay it, you oftentimes, everything you owned was sold. You were put into slavery and you and your family would work to pay off that debt. Now he owed 10,000 talents. And for you and me, that's like saying you owe 10,000, you know, Swedish fish francs. Who the heck knows what that is, right? Well, here's, here's what it is. A denarii, another unit of measurement of, of income, was about one day's wages. And there's 6,000 denarii for every one talent. So the denarii is a day's wages. There's about 6,000 denarii or 6,000 daily wages into one talent. So let me tell you what this would mean. So let's assume that this guy goes and he works six days a week. He works 50 weeks a year, just to round it out. All right, so he works six days a week, 50 weeks a year, and he works for 20 years. So 20 years with one day off and two weeks off a year, that's it. And, and, and he gets to the end of his 20 years. This is what would happen. He'd get brought in front of the king and the king would say these words. He said, congratulations, you've worked for 20 years. And that you've earned 6,000 denarii. That's great. That's enough to pay back one talent. You only have 9,999 more talents to go. So let me tell you how long it would take. It would take 200,000 years to pay back the 10,000 talents. It would take 200,000 years of consistent work to pay back 10,000 talents. It's astronomical. There was actually not another Roman numeral, numeral larger than, than 10,000 or nine, larger than, what is that, five decimal places, right? There's, it's, it's inconceivable the amount of money this is. If we translate it into modern times, it's $7.4 billion. That's what this guy told. And so he's forgiven it. It says right here, servant fell. He said, have patience with me. The master released him and he forgave him the debt. But then this is what that servant does in the next verse, Matthew 18, 28. It says, but that same servant went out. He found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. But he refused and went and put him to prison until he should pay the debt. So that same servant that had forgiven all this work, he goes out and he finds a guy that owes him four months worth of wages or the equivalency of about $12,000. And the comparison is stark. Four months of wages versus 200,000 years of wages. $12,000 versus $7.4 billion. So why do we do the math? Because we have to understand the contrast here 
is overwhelming. You see, the command of Colossians 3 is only empowered by the gospel, which tells us that we have been forgiven so much. You and I are the servant that has owed God the 10,000 talents. We owe a debt that is so astronomical that we cannot pay it. So in the context of what other people have done to us, although it might be horrific, it has no bearing on comparison to the debt that you and I have been forgiven. And there's a couple of principles we can draw out of this, that the kingdom of Jesus can only require forgiveness if it empowers us to forgive. And then it also empowers us to forgive to the extent that we have been forgiven. Because we see the 10,000 talents, the largest debt that we can conceive of, 200,000 years of work forgiven. And so the gospel can only require it require us to have this radical forgiveness of Colossians 3 if it empowers us to forgive to the extent that we've been forgiven, which it does. You see, what we see is that we've been forgiven to such an extent that to withhold forgiveness makes no sense. The story makes no sense. He's been forgiven all of this incredible debt that would have destroyed his life, destroyed his family for generations to come. It would have been, it would have wrecked his life and the debt would have been impossible to pay, completely forgiven. And yet a very reasonable debt that would have been reasonable to repay. And the person says the same exact language that the person wrote a lot said, I'll please have patience with me. I will repay you. And he throws him in prison. It makes no sense. And, and forgiveness makes no sense on a lot of different levels, both as it relates to what we have done to God, but then it also makes no sense because forgiveness is the shackle keeping us in bitter, bitterness and hopelessness. Like unforgiveness does nothing to the other person like it does to you and me when we don't forgive. It keeps us locked in bitterness and hopelessness. It actually keeps us locked in cynicism. So a lot of times cynicism is an expression of that bitterness and unforgiveness. And what we're doing is we're holding our love for another person hostage with our unforgiveness in order to exact a payment. I want a payment. I want the groveling. I want the forgiveness. Uh, uh, how many times have we heard, I just want you to, to, to ask me for forgiveness. Well, again, that's trying to exact a debt that maybe that person is not prepared to pay. So to withhold forgiveness within the context of what God has done for us makes no sense. And it makes no sense both as it relates to us and God, but it makes no sense for our own hearts anyway, because we just suffer when we don't forgive. And finally, we cannot forgive unless we see how much we have been forgiven by the ultimate judge. You see, on the cross, Jesus took our debt. He took every debt that our sin has incurred, and he completely and utterly paid it by offering his very life to cover the cost. You see, in this way, God forgives us, but yet is also completely just while doing so. The punishment and the justice is exacted on Jesus. And you cannot be the judge and jury because that is God's job and he has already done it. And now there's a new angle for your family. There's a new way to approach them in the midst of conflict. You can approach your family with grace and forgiveness freely. Why? Because the justice has already been enacted. The punishment for their sin against you has already been paid by Jesus. It's already been freely given. So what is forgiveness? Forgiveness is a sincere action of the heart 
to release all obligation to repay a wrong by recognizing that your wrongs and theirs have already been paid for. That's what forgiveness is. And that's what to do when you've been wronged. Now, it's not just us being wronged, but if you're sitting with your family, you have also wronged them as well. And so what what to do when you've wronged someone else? Well, our natural response and our bent is either to um, avoid it, excuse it, minimize it, or condemn our own selves. So it's either excuse, avoidance, excuse, minimization, or condemnation. So the idea of, of avoidance, well, if I don't talk about it, it will go away. And oftentimes it does, because like we mentioned before, your family has to keep moving forward. And so if you don't talk about these things or address them, then it'll probably go away to some degree. But what what we don't remember is that oftentimes we play whack-a-mole with our pain, so it'll come up in other areas. But it's either avoidance or excuse. Um, if only they understood the situation, it would make sense. My actions would make sense if just they understand. They just don't understand. So what's that doing is excusing maybe a sin or a wrong against another person or minimization. They've blown this completely out of the water. They blow this completely out of proportion. It's not as bad as they're saying that it is. They're just not seeing it correctly. Or on the flip side of those three is condemnation. Well, everything I've done tells me that I am just a terrible person and I'm just awful, right? And we just self-condemn. So what's, what's happening underneath the surface here. What's happening underneath the surface? Well, it's either self-justification or self-condemnation. The self-justification is putting the excuses forward. It's it's avoiding. It's doing all these things. But, but then there's also another way to approach this, depending on your personality or the situation, is that we can also self-condemn and just have this persistent guilt that says, oh my gosh, I can't believe I've done this. What's happening here with what to do when you have wronged someone is exactly the same thing that happens when you struggle to forgive someone, which is you become judge and jury. That's why I talked at the beginning about the kingdom of Jesus, where King Jesus comes in and sits on the throne of your life, having a rule and a reign and a different way of living, a different angle, a different approach to conflict. Why? Because you and I are not the judge and the jury when it comes to reconciliation and when it comes to what to do when we have wronged someone. We're not the jury for other people. We're not even the jury for ourselves. So what's the treatment? How do we move forward if we've wronged someone? Well, Matthew 5 gives us some good input on that. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother And then come and offer your gift. That's Matthew 5, verses 23 to 24. So what he's saying is when you're in any environment, even if you're offering a spiritual sacrifice or gift to God, and you remember that someone's got something against you or you had wronged someone, stop what you're doing, go to them, and then come back. But here's the deal. That sounds great. But selfishness still exists in my own heart. And things are never just that easy, is it? It's never just leave, go, reconcile with them, and then come back, right? That seems very easy and non-nuanced, but as we know, things are difficult and nuanced, especially 
within our family conflict. Because here's the deal, it's never clear cut. Sometimes people have wronged us too. How in the world do I do this? And that's where we get to our main text for today as it relates to reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. A couple of realizations that we get from this text as it relates to how we can accomplish the goal of reconciliation to the best way that we can. Well, first thing is, uh, as a Christian, when you, are, when you wrong someone, you are not living out of your truest identity. Because remember what the scripture just said here, in Christ, you're a new creation. You are a new creation in Christ. And so when you sin against someone, when you wrong someone, you can genuinely do that, but you are not living out of your truest, deepest identity, which is new creation in Christ. That's, that's our framework on how we approach ourselves. This means that we can be truly honest about the sin that we have sinned against for someone else, but that doesn't have to condemn us. And that doesn't have to crush us because like I am a new creation in Christ. I'm just in this moment, I wasn't living out of that. So I'm deeply sorry. Here's the deal. There's no relationship. Another principle we draw out of this is that there was no relationship more hostile than us against God. We were completely separated from God. And yet God did the unthinkable. Even though he was the wronged party, he accomplishes the entire work of reconciliation for us. What does he do? He adds to his divinity, humanity. He suffers with us. He, he, he is willingly subjecting himself to other people wronging him. He's the voluntary victim of sin and injustice, and he sacrifices himself to bring us back. And then when he raises from the dead, his resurrection becomes our resurrection. This is what God does. You see, this means that when you have wronged someone, you are not the judge and jury of your life, either for self-justification or self-condemnation. In fact, God makes you new again, freely able to admit your wrongs. And you can embrace humility like Jesus did because your sin did not undo your identity as a new creation. So what is reconciliation? Reconciliation is a reestablishment of relational proximity and mutual trust between two people who are distant from one another. And it's only empowered by what God has already done for us now. What's the ultimate hope in the midst of conflict? As we've been talking through our series, um, Pastor Derek and I have been using the analogy of an acorn. And you and your family are like little tiny acorns. <laughs> and you see, in our entire lives with Jesus, what's happening is we are getting planted. We're getting rooted. We are deepening our roots. And we might even be sprouting a little bit over the course of our whole lives as it relates to who we one day will be. But our entire lives on this earth, the entire 70, 80, 90 years of life that you get on this earth is like not even an inch out of the ground for what one day we will be. You see, one day we will die. And that's when the real growth of our lives begins to happen. We actually begin to emerge 
in glory. And we grow with Jesus into these beautiful oaks, shining and brilliant. And what we see is that if that's our approach to life and the people in our family, that's our, our household, our, our children, our spouses, our parents, our in-laws, if they're a follower of Jesus, they are all on a journey to glory. That's not going to be fully accomplished in this life. Who they are has not even begun to be truly seen. And what this means is that this gives us like a hopeful freedom for forgiveness. Why? Because we know that other sin against us is not the end of their story. And this also gives us hopeful humility with reconciliation when we've wronged someone else, because we know that our sin against others is not the end of our story. And in fact, God can even redeem conflict to help us grow even deeper into who he's already created us to be. So before I move on to application, I do want to add some disclaimers, okay? That the disclaimer, a couple of disclaimers that I think could be helpful as it relates to conflict, because there is some nuances to this. I don't, I, I'm obviously painting these things with broad strokes because we're preaching a sermon, but I do want to add some disclaimers. So the first is this, that um, forgiveness does not equal trust and reconciliation and the restoration of relationships. So they're two different things. And in fact, if you were to give trust to someone without evidencing that there's a true change in their life, that can actually be enabling them to continue doing really harmful and hurtful things. So the command is, is to forgive. But forgiveness does not mean that you automatically trust them, that you're automatically reconciled to them, and that you're already restored to them in personal relationship. That's the first thing. Second thing, um, forgiveness involves lament. So we have to acknowledge the brokenness of the world. We have to see our own brokenness. We have to see other people's brokenness. And we have to confront that uh, brokenness, which, which means that that can take more time than we want it to. But for it to be genuine, it's going to have to take time and it's going to have to involve lament. Like if you've been sinned against, you have to mourn that and acknowledge that, not just forgive and forget. We don't do that. And we don't preach that here at Redeeming Hope. God resolves all of our sin at the cross, but he does not forget. He resolves it. And so in order to resolve it in our own hearts and minds, that's going to take time. It's going to take lamenting. Um, third, um, reconciliation takes both parties being willing to engage. So it's really hard to reconcile with someone, and you, it's impossible to do so if they don't also want to reconcile. It's the coming together of two parties. That's why I said it's mutual tr- trust, reestablishing mutual trust and relational proximity, which actually, um, as the phrase says, it takes two to tango. And then four, forgiveness is a command. Reconciliation is not. However, with families, it's impossible to move forward in cohesion as a family without reconciliation. So there's certain environments and certain ways that you just simply can't reconcile with someone. Uh, And we're going to talk in just a minute. We're going to bring up a text to say, how do we then walk through this with someone that doesn't want to be reconciled? But the idea is that forgiveness is the command because that has nothing to do with the other person. It only has to do with you deciding to release them from the debt that they owe you. But reconciliation does take willing parties. However, in your family, it will be extremely hard to live in the same house. It will be extremely hard to move forward on mission for Jesus if you are not reconciled. So um, that's the most important relationships to reconcile with your immediate family. So application, a couple points of application. 
Forgiveness must be sincere. And sincere and lasting forgiveness often means going slow. So take your time with it. Secondly, forgiveness is a command from God that we are invited to obey for our benefit. When we hold love hostage, it just hurts us. So don't perceive yourself as weak or minimizing what has been done to you when you seek to forgive someone. In fact, it's truly for your benefit. Three, reconciliation requires mutual humility, mutual confession, and mutual commitment to reestablishing proximity and intimacy. And this is vital for your family. So when you come together to reconcile, it's so important to bring that willing heart that says, I want cohesion. I want a reestablishment of proximity and mutual trust, and I am going to work at this. So it requires humility, confession, commitment. And four, forgiveness and reconciliation is a reflection of the gospel in your family, and being an expert here will be fruitful. So it's important to grow in these areas continually, not just listen to the sermon and move on. And so to help with that, I created a website for some resources on forgiveness, and it's ourhope.cc slash forgive. Or you can go to redeeminghope.org slash forgive. But the easier shortened URL is rhope.cc slash forgive. And there we've dropped some articles. We've dropped some sermon series from people that we trust and know here at Redeeming Hope. And uh, to equip you to become an expert in forgiveness and reconciliation. So if you have open items with someone, I would strongly suggest uh, going to that and accessing those resources that we can't quite get to in this sermon. So what do you do if you can't reconcile with someone? What do you do if maybe you can take the step to forgive, but you the other person is maybe not around you? Uh, maybe they're in a different state. Maybe they're not connected with a church. Maybe they're not even a Christian. And, and so how do you reconcile with someone that doesn't want to be? Well, I think Romans 12 gives us a good framework for how to approach all of these complex relationships in our lives, and especially the ones that can't be quite buttoned up. As simply, Romans twelve eighteen says, "Then, if it is possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all." Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, "Vengeance is mine; I will repay," says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him; if he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil. With good. This is the opposite of the world, isn't it? The opposite of the world says, avenge yourself, fight for your rights. But what we see here is that vengeance is evil. Trying to exact a payment is evil. And he says, don't be overcome by the need for vengeance, but rather overcome that evil with doing good. Serve others. Take a posture of humility. But what we see is that God can redeem conflict and he can change you in the process. He can even redeem your own family conflict and change you in the midst of it. So our main point is this, that Jesus makes us new creations. And his kingdom gives us just this incredible hope for change in the midst of conflict. We embrace that hope through recognizing what's been done for us, which reorients us towards forgiveness and reconciliation. So where's the ultimate hope? Our ultimate hope is truly intimacy with Jesus. Uh, I love to go fishing with my nephew. And a couple years ago, my nephew was, was six years old and he loved to fish, but
but he was just a terrible fisherman. He was awful at it. He would throw a line out and he'd get a bird's nest and he'd try to catch little bluegills that are about this big with a hook that's this big. The hook couldn't even fit in their mouth. And we'd sit on the steps at our, our little family place that we go to fish and I'd sit next to him and I would make, I, he would struggle. And what's the first thing he'd do when he struggles? He hands his fishing pole to Uncle Josh. What do I do? I'm, I'm trying to fix the line. I'm re-rigging his stuff. I'm putting the worm on. This was years ago. Now he's able to do that himself. But, but we were spending time together. And I don't go fishing with George because I love to fish. I go fishing with George because I love George. Because if I want to catch fish, I'm not going to go with him. Because he's disturbing the water and he's fishing at the wrong times. But I sit down there and I spend time with him. So in the midst of this struggle and difficulty, and he casts, and all of a sudden he casts right into a tree, and we have to get it out. But here's the deal. The the end goal is not the fishing. The end goal is spending time with George when we fish. And this is as it relates to conflict. Conflict is an excuse for us to abide with Jesus. Like, conflict within our family is a helpful reminder that we have been forgiven. It's a helpful reminder that we need the grace of God in our life, that we need the gospel. We need God's kingdom principles dictating what we do and where we go. And so the thing of conflict, we need to resolve that. We need to seek forgiveness in those areas. But that's not the end goal. The end goal is growing into Christ-likeness. It's becoming this new creation. It's deepening the roots. And as we angle differently, as we operate like a fly fisherman, slower, more thoughtful, more caring, uh, as we go counterintuitive to the flow of the world and our own natural bent, what happens is we become more like Jesus as we spend time with him in the midst of conflict within our family. So the healing of conflict is not just for our own benefit, for our family's sake to solve the problem, but it's actually got a much longer focus as we look towards the glory and the glorious people that will become in eternity one day. Thank you for listening. We gather every Sunday at the Clarksville area YMCA. For more information, please go to our website at redeeminghope.org.